0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together, and we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We will be in Matthew 6, if you want to open or scroll to join me, verses 24 through 34. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We
1: are in our fourth week in our series called Seek First which I've actually really, really enjoyed. I've really enjoyed these conversations and our experiences in our small groups. And guys, you have come to the right Sunday because today we're gonna talk about the dangers of consumerism and materialism. Who's excited about that? Who's ready for the big dose of guilt and shame for all that you have and all you possess and for actually recognizing your Amazon delivery person? Who's ready for that? And who's ready to hear the pitch, give more money to the church? Yeah? We're signed up for this. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I'm actually excited for this conversation because we are exploring all the different broad paths that lead us away from a life that really matters and a joy and a significance that Jesus promises a part of this kingdom. Um, and I think if, if we're exploring these different broad paths that we have to consider how consumerism might be one of the greatest forces that we live in and exist in and to be honest, the one that we might think about the least. The culture that we live in, it teaches a gospel that stands in opposition to Jesus' way and the example in how we live. The American dream seems to be a gospel of accumulation and consumption. The more we acquire, the richer we are. The more we get to consume, the more we will be satisfied. This underlying promise that we experience within our culture is that happiness is measured by accumulation and consumption. What we get and what we actually get to experience ourselves. But if we were willing to drill down a little bit deeper, our obsession with our stuff and our things is more than just getting that new iPhone or dress or car or that trip to Cabo that will complete ourselves. It has to do also with our status. It has to do with the fact that a lot of these things are tokens of identity. They're an expression of who we are, and I think we learned this at a very young age. I'm very curious. What was the clothing item for you when you grew up that you really, really wanted? Surf style jacket. Surf style jacket? Okay. Doc, Doc Martens. Van, Van shoes. Still kind of want those. What else? Heelys. Uh huh. Ugg boots. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. I know for me, I remembered just desperately wanting gerbos. Am I alone in this? Is this a generation gap? Yeah? Okay, all right, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, you could just get jeans, and I just have jeans, but guys, for twice the amount of money, you could buy jeans with a little white flap on the, on the, on the, on the fly right there, and your status automatically bumps up a whole lot. They, guys, they're still so cool. Look at them. It's almost JNCOs, but not quite JNCOs. Like, it's a fancy Jinko. I laugh at how silly it is now, how desperately I wanted to have that thing, that possession of identity. But, uh, but I still, I don't know if we've really moved on, because instead of it being Drabos, we also have, like, we project our identity on the things that we have as well. Like, I'm the type of person that has the huge Yeti cooler, Right? That is who I am, or I drive a Tesla, or I have the fall collection of Howler Brothers that's coming my direction, or I have that designer clutch, and I know what a clutch is, you know? All these things are expressions of who we are and our status. This is what we were taught. French sociolog- sociologist Jean, uh, jean I don't know that last name, Jean Boulard, yeah, we'll just say that, shares that in the Western world, materialism has become the new and dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced Christianity. Shopping has. If we were to be asked if we actually believe the quip that whoever dies with the most toys wins, like if we're asked that, I think most would go, no, we know that's, that's just... That's, not, that's nonsense, it's hollow, it's silly, it's shallow. But if we're not mindful, that is how we will spend most of our days, trying to accumulate and consume all that this world has to promise us. This movement hasn't emerged by accident, that our rampant consumerism and materialism is a very, very intentional strategic byproduct of multiple billion dollars a year advertising engines that bombard us throughout our days. I find this bit of history actually really, really intriguing. After World War II, uh, the American economy was buoyed by the war, and factories and industry uh, was there to support all the the machinery that was required for that war. But when that that was beginning to shut down, when the, the battles were beginning to weaken, and all of a sudden our need for all of these supplies began to go down, business leaders and politicians and marketing agencies began to grapple with, Well, what do we do with everything that we've built up? How do we keep this machinery going? And um, their conversations led to something really specific. One Wall Street banker, a guy named Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers, he's on record of saying this. We must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained, that's a discipleship word, trained to desire to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desire must must overshadow his needs. From a needs culture to a desire culture, that's where we live, most of us in our days. Our society is sustained by the eternal chase of more. Our needs aren't the goal of our pursuit, it's more and the promise of a little bit more. And so we are bombarded by this aching feeling that satisfaction might just be a click away. And many people study now, they study this around 10,000 times a day, we are the subjects of marketing and all that our society tells us that happiness is up for sale. Our hearts set on consumerism, on materialism, I believe for Jesus would say, this is a dangerous path. American author John Steinbeck, he once wrote this. He said, A strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, sick. As we look around, having our needs isn't enough in our culture. Our ravenous appetite for more is leaving us miserable, greedy, and sick. To be a follower of Jesus means that we have to jump off this conveyor belt. We have to be mindful and aware of all of the promises that we are hearing from marketing and in the society that we live in built around consumerism. And we need to step off that conveyor belt and seek something else. We might be shocked to discover that around 25% of Jesus' teachings has to do with money and materialism. 25%. And it's not just, not like he was a televangelist wanting everyone's money. These 25% of these teachings was given out of concern for what money and materialism can do. How it d- uh, d- disciples us to the broad path that leads to destruction. And I think many of us, we've experienced this. Uh, many of, in, of, of, these, of, of us living in our culture, we've experienced this. Jesus, whom he was talking to, they're not even the people that experience the type of wealth that most Americans have. One of the teachings that Jesus gave is in Matthew chapter 6. It's in the very middle of Jesus' maybe most important teaching or in the Sermon on the Mount. Right there in the middle of these teachings, we find Jesus talks about materialism, consumption, and affluence. And it's worth noting, at the very beginning of chapter 6, Jesus begins with these words, When you give to the needy, Not like if you choose to give to the needy or feel led to give to those in need. It's assumable that if you follow the way of Jesus, it includes generosity for those in need. And Jesus then talks about prayer and he talks about fasting. And then Jesus says this, this is in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus is saying, don't don't put the value of your life on the size of the pile of all your things and wealth that you have stored up. There's something more important. In verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For me, that last line is so critical for this conversation. It's so crucial because Jesus is saying, Be oh so careful in what you treasure, what you value most in this world because whatever holds that ultimate value, that ultimate worth, that is where your heart will be. That's where the core of your identity will be. Make sure that you don't place the weight of your personhood on all the weak promises of this world. That treasure could be a dollar amount that we have or want to have in savings. It could be a home in that desirable neighborhood. We could also treasure that title, that career path. We could could treasure the success of our children above all else or the position we're running after. Jesus is saying, be careful. Give your heart to what is ultimate, what is eternal. It's a dangerous thing to hand over your well-being to that which can fade away so quickly. Then Jesus seems to take a left-hand turn in this teaching. If you were to read it, it almost seems like really kind of just segmented and fragmented. Jesus says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It seems a bit odd and disjointed, right? It's hard for us 2,000 years removed from when Jesus was speaking to particular people in a particular culture that we don't we we don't understand everything but it actually reminds me of this meme that we have here I'm not sure if you guys have seen this 2,000 years from now people will not understand the difference between a butt dial and a booty call (laughs) and this is exactly why the bible is hard to understand (laughs) like uh, you'd have to understand the context is there's worlds apart right I have butt dialed my mom I haven't booty called my mom, you know? (laughs) They're very different. So when we think about, like, the disjointed nature of some scripture, we're like, what is Jesus talking about here? So what's going on in this section right here is this idea of healthy eyes is actually pointing to something really particular. The idea of this is this ancient term for generosity. Unhealthy eyes was used to depict someone who was selfish and stingy? Their eyes weren't healthy, and their life turned towards themselves. Yet healthy eyes was about living with a sense of grateful generosity. If your eyes are, health, are healthy, you are just the generosity of life just flows out of you naturally. And Jesus is saying, these two different perspectives, these two different eyes, will determine the lamp within the body, that of lightness and darkness. Either we will see the world through the lens of generosity, or we'll see it through selfishness. And we know this, that generosity is a worldview. It's a posture that we take through the rest of our days. When we follow consumerism, when we are discipled by materialism, it forms our worldview. And we see people and the needs of people as competition, as reducing what I have. We see other people as maybe depriving us or as lazy and that's a worldview. But if we're formed and discipled through healthy eyes, if we actually have the lens of generosity in front of us, we see the needs of other people not as something that's com- competing against us and our wants, but we see it actually as the opportunity to invest in what truly matters, to give towards Christ's kingdom that begins here and now. And notice this ability to see the world through stinginess has this darkening effect of the soul. And for us to be able to have a lens of generosity, of openness, of blessing, it brings light to us. It fills us with light. These two worldviews are actually heart conditions. They're not disjointed from the teachings about living through generosity. It's actually Jesus is trying to say this is why it matters so much. It's connecting how we store up treasures in heaven and what Jesus says next. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Author John John Mark Comer he shares that in his perspective that this is, is the only time that Jesus refers to another God. He calls out another God by name, and it's this word, money is actually this word, mammon, the God of money the God of consumerism. And Jesus is saying that you cannot serve both me and materialism. You can't serve me and love me in consumerism. If consumerism replaces our devotion to Jesus, then we will begin to participate in a system built around idolizing our things. The word idol, I mean idolizing our things. Our consumerism becomes a religious enterprise where shopping becomes a spiritual discipline Amazon becomes a temple. Catalogs become our liturgies, and the next package waiting waiting for you at your doorstep is a sacrament. It's a really bad religion. And this teaching is especially hard for us because Jesus is actually drawing a really clear and distinct line in the sand that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot love these two different gods. Make up your mind. Either you're going after affluence and wealth or you're going to follow me. You can't do both. And I think most of us Christians in America, most of us who want to follow Jesus, we believe that we can follow Jesus while also chasing after materialism. And yet Jesus says, you'll be devoted to one, only one. You have to despise the other. If I'm honest, I love Jesus but I don't despise consumerism. Like, I I really do. I love, I'm devoted to the way of Jesus, but I don't hate consumerism and materialism. What what, What do we do with this? I don't despise the promises of wealth. I don't look at the promises of affluence and consumption and see the evil that undergirds it. I just try to do both. And it seems like Jesus is saying, you've got to pick. You've got to pick one. What should we do with... What we probably experience oftentimes is people who want to follow Jesus in a sea of consumption. What do we do with our dual devotions? Well, I'm, there's some of us that want to go extreme, and that's, some of us might be called to that. I noticed, though, that Jesus did not ask his follower, followers to take a vow of poverty, all but one person, the rich young ruler. Jesus did for him, maybe because he needed to have a reorientation repentance in his life. As, as what he was experiencing. But the rest of us have to find the narrow path to walk with Jesus, how to have possessions without allowing them to possess us, how to find the narrow gate of being a consumer without placing our hearts on the idol of consumerism. That's really difficult, that's really challenging for us but I think Jesus wants to lead us through that. And I think one of the ways we do that is to continually check in with the Lord Jesus with the possessions that we have been given to steward, not to own, but to steward, how can we do that and do that open-handedly? So these might be some questions for us. Do I place my hope in this next belonging? What does my checkbook, What is my calendar, what does my thought life say I actually treasure? Like Where's my thoughts going to? Would I be willing to leave this thing behind Or release this possession if I was called upon it? Am I open-handed about this? Our scripture reading concluded with Jesus' words, For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his rightness, the way that God has ordered things. And all these things will be given to you as well. Not all our desires but all our needs will be given to us as well. If we were to pull these teachings together from Matthew that we have, that we've discussed so far, Jesus, the one who knows how life was meant to be, who created you and created your heart to experience joy and significance and goodness, he's saying this. He's saying, be careful. Whatever you seek is what you treasure, and your heart was created to treasure one thing, my kingdom, me, If consumerism is the water that we swim in, how can we get out of it? How can we live a different way? Well, the Christian tradition that we live in, that we have, might suggest that we, instead of seeking after consumerism, that we actually seek contentment. I'm going to add simplicity as well. Contentment and simplicity is a different thing for us to seek. It's the way of Jesus, and it's our entrance into the kingdom. So just take a moment here, just check in with yourself. What comes to mind when you think of the words, Contentment and simplicity. When you think of the concepts of contentment, when you think of simplicity, what happens within you, within your mind, within your soul? Paul once wrote to his apprentice, a man named Timothy, he said this, this is in First Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment, is great gain. I love that word, great gain, because when we think of great gains, we're thinking of like a, a line chart going up to the left, like gains, like we're adding on to it, we're throwing in more to the bank account, whatever, but what Paul is saying here to Timothy is godliness and contentment, that is where the good stuff is, that is where the gains are. When I think about contentment, I think of a grateful satisfaction discovered within limits. Contentment is like this gratitude It's like this deep satisfaction, not with the thing out there, not with the next, but actually within the limits, within the things that God has given me. So rather than chasing the promise of the next thing, the promise of more, a life with God is contentment and great gain. Paul continues by saying this, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, with the needs that we have in our life. Those who want to get rich, those who have their hearts set upon the promises of wealth and affluence, they will fall into temptation and a trap, into, into foolish, many foolish things and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what Paul's saying here is that serving the God of more is a trap. It's set for us. It is the broad road that leads to destruction. And then Paul shares the famous quip, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I think it's really important to look at that phrase because it's, it's different than how we use it in our culture. It's, but actually, this is really powerful the way that Paul is saying this. I think it's important to see that money is not evil. Money itself is not evil, but it's the love of money that is evil, it, and it's, it's the root of all kinds of evil. I think it's important because it's acquiring money or saving for retirement or having wealth in itself is not evil. It's not destructive, but the love of money sprouts all kinds of evil. It's not a sin to have a retirement, or have a car, or to enjoy that vacation, but it's the order in which we love that truly matters. This is what Augustine calls the issue of disordered loves. For him, sin sprouts not merely of loving the wrong thing, but from the wrong order of loves. When our love of wealth is a greater priority than caring for the poor, our hearts are disordered. When our pursuit of that title is more important than prioritizing healthy relationships. When our family and our friend and our church community is on the backseat as we're chasing after that next rung in the ladder, our hearts are out of order. For the supreme love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I find this helpful because I internalized a belief that it's actually wrong to enjoy material possessions. Like if you enjoy a material possession too much, don't worry, God's gonna take it from you. I'm not sure if, if you've had that experience as well, if you have internalized that narrative. And so for instance, this is my, for instance, I couldn't care less about cars. Like I could not care less. When I'm eating P. Terry's and I'm reaching in that bag and I'm driving and I'm eating french fry, the next seat next to me is a great napkin. Like I can, like I just do not care about cars. I don't care about clothes, as you might be able to tell. You've seen this shirt now probably eight, nine years uh, as you come to church. Um, I don't care about these things, but I really love our home. Like, our home really matters, especially after not having a kitchen for five months and having a little convection oven in our living room for five months, uh, living with dust, with, like, plastic all over our room, acting like the very end scene of E.T. when you're walking around. It's just everything is plastic-wrapped for like five months now that all of that's gone, and our furniture is in, we have that new rug in place, like, oh, it's so great. But then, the kids started coming over. (laughs) The neighborhood kids found the epicenter of fun was the Charbonneaux, and uh, sometimes not even knocking the door, come on in. And all of a sudden, like, I see them, their hands the bottom of their shoes, running around playing Floors Lava on our pillows, running around, you know, stuffing pirate booty in the, cu- in the couch cushions. Sure, you know. And all of a sudden, like, it's like, all right, I'm going to deputize myself on the cleanliness expert, right? Because I'm looking at these perfectly white walls and hand marks, and I don't even know what's going on in the bathroom. And so I could have that mentality. And then uh, one day I realized, why did we do this? Like, why did we update our home? Why did we create this space? It's so that we could practice hospitality. It's actually like the point of this whole thing was that we could, our home would be the epicenter of fun, that our lives would be like disrupted by the joy of hearing kids play and laugh and run around. The reason we got this sectional is that they, these kids could jump around while they listen to Mario Brothers theme songs on repeat over and over again. It's so interesting though because I, found myself on this different path where I was loving a thing and not the people who would enjoy the thing. And all of a sudden, for me, it was disordered, and so it took some work to get it in the right order. My heart needed to be reordered. For us to follow Jesus in a culture of consumption and materialism, we must continually consider the orders of our love. Does our relationship with our materials and our wealth, or is it becoming a thing of love? Is it in the wrong order? Because what happens is that destruction takes place when we ultimately treasure materialism more than the things of the kingdom of God. As James K.A. Smith succinctly wrote, he said, because in the end, you are what you love. That harkens back to the idea of wherever you put your treasure in there, your heart will also be. One of the primary ways we can ensure that our loves are in the right order, one of the ways that we can ensure that we treasure the right thing is by practicing contentment, in simplicity. Contentment. In seeing the joy not found that out there in the double click of another thing, but the contentment of the joy found in enough. That this is enough. Uh, in the Jewish tradition on, on the night of Seder, they practice this beautiful refrain. They re- retell how God delivered the people out of slavery. And as they tell each step of the way, the people around the Seder meal, they recite this word, Dayenu it would have been enough. Like if, that, if God just did that, it would have been enough. But then God's deliverance came and came and came. And so for us in our life, just to practice the contentment of this is enough. Contentment is not a natural habit. It's not a natural trait, we have to learn it. Just as our society is di- discipling us in the way of consumption, for us to learn contentment is going to be countercultural. It's gonna be different. Difficult. We have to practice it. We have to ask God to help us, to reorient ourselves around our needs and not our wants. will take work. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote this. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. Contentment is the way of finding joy and simplicity and less. This requires something that's countercultural for us. It requires us embracing limits. There is something that we push against when it comes to that. We don't like the idea of limits. The idea of limits feels like it hinders us, it imposes upon us. Thinking the, think, just think of the way that we treat our bodies in our calendars. We hate limits, but in fact, godly living is a life of healthy limitations. For instance, look at the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is a practice of contentment within limits. It's looking at our calendar and saying, this is enough. Six days is enough. I need to have one day where I'm experiencing the boundaries of health and joy, where I can practice stillness and quiet, where I can make sure I'm prioritizing and ordering my life around the things that really matter. Or look at fasting. Fasting is about self-posed and self-imposed limits where we remember that we have all that we really need. Following Jesus in this day and age, well, it will uh, require something of us. It will require us being able to embrace unique uh, created limits around our desires for materialism and consumerism. It will redirect us to the joy, not of a next-day delivery, but the joy that's found in everything that God has already provided for you. And if we live with contentment and simplicity, not only will we find and discover a deeper sense of joy, but we will also discover a margin to be generous. We will have healthy eyes, to see all the opportunities to treasure what really matters, to invest in Jesus' kingdom. And as a follower of Christ, this particularly means two things, caring for the poor and supporting the work of the church. Wherever Christ's kingdom is advancing, wherever the work of the kingdom is, to invest in those two places. It creates margins to store up treasures in Christ's kingdom as we set our hearts on things greater than ourselves. So as a practice-based church, I think it's really important for me to finish this with a couple of just things for us in hopes of living this out a little bit more. So I just want to have a couple of opportunities for you to consider maybe some practices of living into simplicity and contentment today. So uh, here are a couple practices. One is to foster contentment and gratitude. And you do that by taking account of all that, that God has given you. This is an intentional walk around our life, whether it be our things, our closet, our belongings, whether it takes a a mindful evaluation of of the stock that we have in relationships. And instead of focusing on what's out there, consider as you are taking stock, uh, taking account of what you have, to express gratitude to express gratitude for all those provisions. The second thing is to consider fasting. Fasting is also something we could do with this experience is we can embrace limitations around consumerism. That could mean fasting from Amazon or eating out. I knew someone for uh, nine months during a school year in college. She decided that she wasn't gonna buy any more clothes. She needed to fast around that. And we do this fasting not to kind of prove anything, but to redirect our loves and our attention towards God's provision of everything we already have. And every time, just like at a physical hunger fast, every time you feel this pang for more, desire for that next thing, use that as a prompt to practice gratitude. The third practice is to give from your abundance. For many of us, it's not only that we have enough, but we actually have too much. Perhaps we need to have a Jesus-centered Marie Kondo experience where we take an account of everything we have and we give out of our abundance. Not only will that free us up, free us up for experiencing the margins of our life, but it might actually provide for others. And then finally, for us to consider the quality of our giving. Are you proud of how you are living out with generosity? Generosity to the poor, to the marginalized in the church? Do you consider yourself having healthy eyes around giving? For us, as a church, if Jesus spent 25% of his teachings around money, we as a church are not following Jesus' example because we rarely talk about money. Uh, and that's intentionally because many of us are, come from traditions that harp around giving and so it has a negative experience. But I'm afraid that, that our silence is actually condoning uh, something that's really damaging. If we consider our church community, uh, then we as a community, we need to be fostering generosity As a community, that means giving extravagantly to those in need, and then if you consider this your church home, to give and to support what God's doing within this community. It's about participating and being the body of Christ. I am so proud of what our little church is able to do with our meager budget, but I also know we have bigger dreams, bigger hopes, and I think we can play a bigger role in our city, bearing witness to Jesus We are grateful for the support we give, but we would also love to expand what we're able to do in Christ's kingdom. So I'd encourage each of us just to take a stock, take an account of how we're practicing generosity inside the church walls and outside the church walls. For wherever we treasure, there our heart will also be.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.